Good to uh, see everyone here this morning and uh, great to see some new faces as well. Um, always good to welcome new people here. This, uh, you, well done for finding us if you're new here actually because this is uh, not our regular meeting venue at the moment. We'll be at Hickle St. Anne Community Center back from uh, next week and we'll be there most of the time through up until summer. As Brent said, we're hoping to get a new building ourselves. Um, Topmar building, oh, the old Topmar building down on Clark Street over the uh, north side of the city. So we're looking forward to getting that. If you are a, a guest or a visitor with us this morning, we do have a welcome table. Please do get as much as you, uh, information as you would like to get from the people serving there. And there's some uh, things that you can take away. And there's a little card you can fill in. You can get the weekly email as well uh, with everything that uh, is uh, going on in the life of the church. And uh, if you want to catch up on messages you've not heard, you can catch up on our website. Or actually today, you can catch up on one of them, uh, probably a fairly old one, um, on CJRI 104.5 radio. Because apparently they are going to be uh, looking to play one of our messages once a month. Um, so uh, they're starting off with one of Dave Fellingham's messages when we, he was with us. And so I think that's tonight. They said at 8 o'clock. Um, their website says 7, so it could be 7, it could be 8. Um, but if you want to tune in and listen to Dave Fellingham tonight, that's great. Uh, this morning, we're looking at Mark's Gospel. And uh, my name is Mark, by the way. I'm one of the leaders here. And we've been looking at Mark. Not this Mark. I'm not the same one who wrote the Gospel. Uh, <laughs> let me introduce my Gospel. Um, <laughs> And we've been working through this over the uh, months uh, when I've been preaching, and we're up to chapter 12. And we're just going to read a few verses today and get into that. So if you've got a Bible, you can look at it, uh, Mark 12, verses 13 to 17, or if you can read it, uh, the words are up on the screen here as well. So, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right that we pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and asked, he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed. All right, so to set the scene, Jesus has uh, come into Jerusalem. It's the last week of his uh, life before his crucifixion, and obviously then his resurrection. But he's come into Jerusalem, and uh, he immediately started upsetting people. He, he went into the temple. He overturned all the tables and stopped the money changers, drove them out of the temple, uh, and all the people selling animals. And he said, uh, you know, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, and uh, you've made it kind of into a bazaar, a market. Um, and... Uh, really upsetting all of the religious leaders. And so uh, group by group, what they're doing is they're coming and they're sending people to him to try and catch him, to try and trick Jesus, to get him to the point where the crowd either turn against him or where the authorities, the Roman authorities, maybe will arrest him or something along those lines. They're looking for some angle to try and trick him. And there were a number of different groups 
who were opposing Jesus. Um, they didn't necessarily agree with each other on much else, but they were united in opposing Jesus. And next time we're going to look at the Sadducees uh, coming to Jesus and asking a question. But this time we've got the Pharisees and the Herodians. And uh, Mark says they're looking to catch him in his words, although at first they use some flattery um, to, to say, oh, how, he, how amazing he is and how he doesn't uh, get swayed by what other people think. Jesus sees all through that. We need discernment sometimes to see when people are using flattery to, uh, to get, have another agenda. Jesus sees straight through it. Um, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they didn't have a lot in common with each other, to be honest. It's not as though they were two groups who were united together. They didn't have a lot in common with each other. In fact, it would have been much like, um, if we're looking at it in terms of political parties, it would have been like the conservatives and the liberals joining together to come and to challenge Jesus, or the Republicans and the Democrats, if you're looking at it from a... a, a, a uh, United States perspective. The situation at the time was that the Roman Empire had spread and uh, Rome had got political control of Israel and Judea. There's still some freedom for religious groups to make decisions about Judaism. The Sanhedrin were in charge of the, the temple. They had freedom there. Um, but you've got the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees really didn't like Roman rule. Um, they really didn't like what was going on. They wanted to preserve the Jewish identity. Uh, were keen on getting people to obey at least the outward aspects of the Jewish law or Torah. The Herodians, on the other hand, they were very much, they were still a Jewish group, but they were very much in sympathy with the Roman rule. Uh, much more, they would say, much more progressive. Some people would say they compromised um, much more than the Pharisees, but uh, they were on board with more of the Roman ways. So the Pharisees are more of the conservative group, the Herodians more of the liberal group, if you want to look at it like that. But here they are, <coughs> excuse me, they put aside their differences and they come united in their opposition to Jesus. And they come to ask Jesus a question, and they're asking him a question about the imperial tax, the imperial tax. This was a tax that came about after the census. You remember back at the, the birth story of Jesus where there was a census held uh, um, and uh, everyone was counted. Well, the purpose of that was so that people could be taxed. Um, so you know who everyone is. And uh, the Romans used that, uh, that census to tax the people in the empire who were not Roman citizens. So if you were a Roman citizen, you didn't get taxed. Um, so only certain people were getting taxed. It, was a bit, it would be a bit like a special tax on those of us living in Canada who aren't citizens, for example. Um, so that would be our family and uh, the Rosales family and the Andersons. Those, of us, those who are not Canadian citizens, they would be the ones getting taxed. Actually, I guess technically it would be more like if, um, let's say, that the British came back and, and re-established the British Empire and we taxed all the Canadians. Um, that's more like it because it's like people ta getting taxed in their own land from, a, from an external power that's, 
that's coming in. So you can imagine if, uh, if we suddenly established that tax and said, okay, all Canadians are going to get taxed, but if you're a British citizen, you're, you're perfectly good. It's going to cause a bit of a stir. It's going to cause a bit of unrest. People aren't going to like it. Um, and, uh, and that's exactly what happened. People were not happy about paying this, um, this, this tax this special uh, tax that was established. It, it was amounted to one denarius a year. One denarius a year. And a denarius was a year's, sorry, it was a day's wages. So one day's wages for the year. So one 365th, you might want to say, uh, of the amount that people were going to get in. Not a huge amount, not a huge amount, but... Uh, People were unhappy about it, not because of the amount, but just because they were being taxed it. Uh, and it became a huge issue at the time, and so uh, it was talked about a lot. So here you've got these two different groups, and they've got two different views on it. Obviously, the Pharisees are not going to be happy in paying the tax. Um, the Herodians were, were, were good with it. Um, so they're both coming with a different angle on what Jesus' answer is. The Herodians are going to be like, oh, yep, we should, you know, if Jesus says we should pay, it will be happy. The Pharisees won't. And they're thinking, well, they've got a way to trap Jesus. Because if Jesus answers one way, he's going to upset the other one group. And if he answers another way, he's going to upset the other group. More than that, he's going to upset the people. Because if he says, oh, yes, well, you should pay the temple tax. Not the temple tax, sorry. It's, um, it wasn't called the temple tax. It was the imperial tax. If you do pay the imperial tax, he's going to upset all of the people, many of whom are following him. So he's going to get the crowd turning against him, and that's one of the things that they're looking to see happen. If he says you shouldn't pay it, obviously then the Roman uh, governance is going to turn against Jesus as well, and they're going to say, hey, who's this guy <coughs> starting an insurrection? He's uh, encouraging everyone not to pay the imperial tax, so they're going to be a lot more motivated to stop Jesus and to arrest him. These two groups think that they've banded together and they've got Jesus in a trap. They think that's it. They've, they've found him out and they've found a way to do it. They're, they're pretty pleased with themselves. They might have even known that even within Jesus' closest group of disciples, there was different opinions going on. So you've got Simon the Zealot, Zealots were the most venomously opposed to, the, to this tax and to Roman rule. And they were, they, were, they were more like the freedom fighters of the day, even the political terrorists, you could say, of the day. The Zealots and the Simon the Zealot. And then also in Jesus' group, you've got Matthew, who's a tax collector. So he's one of the guys who's collecting this tax in. So if Jesus starts to say something and take one side or the other... Well, even Jesus' disciples could turn on each other. So this is the situation that Jesus is faced with. Difficult question, isn't it? It's a difficult question. And Jesus tries to walk the line between the two. He's not going to go one way or the other. You know, it's, even when it comes to politics, I think it's not a good idea for those of us, say, in church leadership, it's not a great idea for us always to say, uh, what are political persuasion is in terms of party politics because you can cause division among people. If I said this morning I was a big supporter of Donald Trump, probably that's going to cause some people problems. Equally, if I said I was a big supporter of Justin Trudeau, that's going to cause other people problems. So I'm not going to say what I'm a big fan of. 
Apart <laughs> from probably neither. But, <laughs> but maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> the truth is, Christians have got, have got freedom to support either either liberal or conservative, either Republican or Democrat, really. They've got the freedom to get heavily involved in politics, and they've got the freedom not to be in politics and keep themselves separate from it. Um, we're actually united in Christ, and uh, no one political party is going to embody uh, what God um, wants on, on something. So, anyway, the question that Jesus asks, or the, uh, the whose side is Jesus on, is a bit of a false question. Because Jesus isn't going to say, well, I'm on your side, or I'm on your side. Do you remember um, in Joshua, um, Joshua, at the book of Joshua, Joshua comes and he sees the man, he's going into battle, and he sees the man with the sword drawn, and he goes and he says to him, are you on our side, or are you on the side of our enemies? And, he, and the man says, uh, neither, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And then he starts to say to Joshua, okay, come on, this is what I want you to do. When God comes, he doesn't come and say, well, I'm on your side or I'm on your side. He says, no, I am coming and I'm, I'm in charge now. <laughs> so God comes and he, he's the one who takes over. Anyway, what did Jesus say? How did Jesus answer this question? Jesus asked them, bring me a coin. He told them, bring me a coin, the denarius, which is what it was paid. And they said, whose image does it bear? We've got a, a, a slide of the coin, if you can see it. So this is a denarius. Uh, this is an actual denarius. As I say, it was worth one day's wages. It's, it's worth about $5,000 these days, if you find one. Um, but uh, there is, and that would have been the one, uh, probably, that Je the, 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 the head on it that was the, the one at, in Jesus' day. That's Tiberius Caesar. He was uh, ruling in the day of Jesus. So Jesus said, okay, bring me a coin. Here it is. Um, whose image does it bear? And they say, well, it's Caesar's, Tiberius Caesar. Um, in fact, the, on the image, you, you won't be able to see fully, but the writing around the coin, and it's in Latin anyway, the writing around the coin says, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Um, so he was uh, it's fairly high and lofty claim for him. On the back side of it, it said, our high priest. So really, you can see why this coin is going to upset uh, the Jewish people. It's claiming divinity. And uh, so many, many Jews wouldn't have even ha wanted these coins even in their possession because it's got an image of someone who's claiming to be God. So they say, well, it's got Caesar's image on it. And Jesus says, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what is God's? And it says, and they were amazed. They were amazed. So what does it mean? What did Jesus mean? Well, if a coin had the image of someone on it, then that coin was no, seen to belong to them. It's their image on the coin. So it's owned by them. Caesar's image is on the coin, so it belongs to him. So Jesus is saying, so give to Caesar's. What is Caesar's? It's his image on the coin. Give to Caesar. And he also says, give to God's what is God's. It's not an either or. It's a both and. In fact, being loyal to God will involve submitting to the authorities who govern the nation. 
being loyal to God does involve submitting to authorities that have been established by God to govern the nation. Paul and Peter spell it out in a little bit more detail in their letters. Let's just have a, a little look at this because Jesus just does a, says a, a, a very brief statement. But this is what Paul says in Romans 13. Let's read verses 1 to 7. Paul says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. And again, he's talking about the Roman authorities still. It's still the same political situation. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do what is right, but for those who do what's wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers don't bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is why you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servant who give their time full-time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. All right, some pretty detailed instruction there from Paul as to how to live. Peter says a similar thing, a few more uh, verses in 1 Peter 2. 13 through 17. First Peter, I'm on second Peter. First Peter 2, 13 to 17. Submit yourself to the Lord for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do what's right. For it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So that's in a situation where the, where the authorities are, are oppressive. They've come in. They're not, they're not always doing what people thought were bringing God's will and freedom. But Paul and Peter and Jesus are saying the same thing. Honor those who govern because God is the one who's established that authority. God is the one who's put that government in place. Not just the good ones. Not just the ones that we agree with. Everyone who has been put in authority is answerable to God and is also demonstrating some of God's justice and righteousness. That's quite a big statement, isn't it? It's quite a big statement. The authorities ruling in Jesus and Paul's time wouldn't be popular, but Paul's saying they're there to keep order. Authority is better than no authority. So if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If the government asks you to do something, then do it. I guess the only, well not I guess, but the only time not to do that is if it directly, what they're asking to do, directly contradicts what God asks us to do. So if a government said, you mustn't worship God, you mustn't worship Jesus, you must da bow down to another God, as happened in Babylon with in, in the book of Daniel, then we can't do that. 
and then we bear the consequences of whatever comes, whether that's imprisonment or death. We see it in Acts 4, don't we? Acts 4, the, the apostles, they go to the um, authorities. In fact, they get pulled into the authorities and they said, don't talk about Jesus anymore. Stop telling everyone about Jesus. And they said, well, we can't help but speaking about what we've heard or seen. We can't help it. We, we just can't do anything but do that. So when, when what the government's asking us to do comes right against what God's saying, at that point, we have to choose God over the government. But the majority of the time, we have to honor what our government asks us to do in all things. We don't have to like it. We don't have to like what the government's asking us to do or the way that government is taking things. But the Bible says don't rebel against them. Actively pray for them. First Timothy 2, 1 to 3 says, I urge that all petitions and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. So, if we don't like what our government are doing, pray for them. If we do like what they're doing, pray for them, that they will understand the high calling that they've got, and that they'll administer the responsibilities that they've been given by God with the fear of God. Sometimes submitting to authority established by God can mean we've, we pass up on opportunities that others might urge us to take. So do you remember David? Do you remember the story of David? He's fleeing from King Saul. Saul's the king. And David is David's actually the anointed king. He's already been anointed by Samuel at this point. He knows he's going to become the king. So he knows he's in God's will that he's going to be it's in God's will that he's going to become the king. And Saul, the current king, is pursuing him, trying to kill him. David's hiding in a cave. And Saul comes in because he needs to use the cave as a bathroom. I'm not going into too many more details about that. So David's hiding in the back of the cave, and he sees Saul come in. And Saul isn't on full alert looking around the cave at this point. He's otherwise occupied. And David's got a chance. David's got an opportunity to come in and to kill Saul. And then he'll become king because he, he's already been anointed. He knows God's got that. And his men are encouraging him, this is your opportunity. This is what you've got to do. Instead... All that David does is cut off the corner of Saul's rope. He sneaks up and cuts off the corner. And he even feels bad about that. He even uh, is conscience-stricken about that. And he says to his men, The Lord forbid that I ever lay a hand on him. He is the anointed one of the Lord. David, he was trying to kill you. No, he's been anointed by God. And I've got to respect that. David had to believe that God was going to outwork his plans some other way. You know, David had to put his trust in God and not take things into his own hands. Sometimes we feel we have to take things into our own hands. But God's often asking us to wait for him. He's the one who will justify and vindicate. He's the one who will hold authorities to account. He will bring about his plans and purposes. So God establishes authorities. He establishes them in society. He establishes them in church. And those who are in authority 
are answerable to God for how they act. And God asks us to submit willingly to those authorities, even if we disagree with them. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't challenge them. doesn't mean we shouldn't get involved in different things, in politics and whatever. It, uh, it doesn't mean we should, uh, shouldn't give our perspective on things or even campaign for change. But in the end, we submit, we choose to submit that God's put in those positions and trust God to act in his good timing. So that's giving to Caesar what is Caesar's. And uh, as I say, Paul and Peter expand it a little bit. But what about the second part of what Jesus said? The second part of what Jesus said, give to God what is God's. Well, what's he meaning by that? That often gets overlooked, actually. Um, I was saying to Brent earlier in the week, I was, I was looking at a few commentaries. None of them were talking about what that means. Give to God what is God's. They were all like, oh, this is what it means to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Well, the conversation that Jesus was having was about money. So maybe the Pharisees would have immediately leapt to thinking about money uh, and thinking about the tithe, thinking maybe Jesus is referring to the tithe. Um, that was an amount of money that the Jewish law or Torah uh, legislated to be set aside as God's. And it's generally seen as 10%, although um, if you study the Old Testament, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So on a surface level, Jesus might have been seen to be saying, okay, look, you give one 365th of your wages to Caesar, and you give a tenth of your money to God in the tithe. And in that way, it could have been seen as though he's keeping both sides happy, preventing the crowd rebelling against him, preventing the Romans coming for him. But I don't believe that is exactly what Jesus was looking at and saying. Let's look a little bit more closely what the Bible says. Verse 15 in chapter 12, when they're flattering Jesus and then asking the question, says, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. In other words, I mean, we see it in other parts of the Gospels. The Pharisees would say one thing. They would pretend that they were all pious and religious and God-fearing. They would do things, but Jesus saw right through them. And he would say things to them like, like you're, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside. Inside, you've just got death going on. Um, he, he said some pretty vicious things to them because he saw right into their hearts. Um, and he saw that their hearts were far from God's. In Luke 11, verse 42, he says this to the Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees. You give God a tenth of your mint and uh, all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. He says, you're getting so obsessed with tithing you're going out and you're saying, oh, we've got some mint here. Well, let's just get, okay, there's, well, there's 10 leaves of mint. So here's nine for us and there's one for God. God can have this little sprig of mint. And, uh, you know, they, they're getting so picky because they're wanting to get it exactly right and say, oh, we keep the law. We do it exactly right. And Jesus is saying, your hearts are so far from God. You're just getting focused in on all the details. But your hearts, and you're not even worried about justice. You're not even caring about that. So it's about far more than, than giving your 
and thinking that you've satisfied God's requirements. The coin had Caesar's image on it. So it was to be given to Caesar. So what bears God's image? Well, we bear God's image. We are made in the image of God. We're created in the image of God. We have the stamp of God on our lives. We are his. 1 Corinthians 6 and chapter, chapter 6 and 19 says, Don't you know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Well, how do we give to God what is God's? Well, Paul's saying in that thing, honor God with your bodies because your bodies are temples of the Spirit. We've got the Spirit of God living in us. We, we have him dwelling in us. So give to God what is God's. Give your body to God's, to God. We might imagine, well, we're, surely we're free to do what we wish. Paul's pointing out that's not the case. He goes on to say in chapter 7, he says, you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. Now, it sounds like we're in slavery, and in some senses the Bible talks about it as slavery, but it's very different than when we were slaves of the law and we had to obey every command and, and, and have no help whatsoever. But now we're temples of the Holy Spirit. God's dwelling in us in power and gives us the desire to live differently. And, and, and so that's how we're to live, committing our whole life to him. You see, in this passage in Mark that we're reading, it's slightly divided up because we've got this, this thing about the Sadducees coming. But in a few more verses, Jesus says these words when he's asked what the greatest commandment is. What is the greatest commandment? And he says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. You mean not just a tenth? Not just a tenth of our lives is devoted to God? No. You've got to love God with everything. Give God everything. We're marked with his spirit. We're made in the image of God. We give our whole lives back to him. Once we've understood this, it changes everything. It affects every single area of our life. It has implications of what we do with our time, how we spend our time. It has implications with what we do with our money. It has implications in our commitment to things, to other things. Because others will demand things of us. Others will demand commitment above all else. Ask us to give everything for them. It might be our workplace says, hey, if you want to get on in this work, you've got to give yourself. You're, you're, you've got to give yourself to this job. You've got to go over and above what, what others are doing if you want to get on. It might be our workplace that asks us to give everything. It might be our sports teams who demand things of us. It might be our families that demand things of us. But God's call on our life trumps all of those things. So if we're God's, then there'll be times when we don't allow our work to take up every spare hour. There'll be times when we don't do what our family expects us to do or even live where they expect us to live. There'll be times when we have to say to our kids' sports coach, I'm sorry, I can't make, our, kid, our, our, our children can't make that game or that training session. Yes, we're to honor 
all of those people, all of those situations, and seek to win them by our attitude and approach. So we're not lazy. We're not like, oh, it doesn't matter about those things. Laziness and unreliability aren't going to impress anyone. But we've got to always keep in mind that we have a higher calling and different priorities to everyone else. With our finances, we have a different focus. The Jews were very upset that one 365th of their income was being demanded to them by Caesar. But when we're God's, we delight to give to him. And not just the one-tenth that was demanded by the Jewish law, but even more because we've got the Holy Spirit living within us and there's a spirit of generosity arising with us. And we realize, well, do you know what? Everything that we've got is God's anyway. Everything that we own is God's. He's given it to us. We're just stewards of it. The Pharisees are giving the appearance of being godly, but it's just an outward show. They gave the bare minimum. They gave the one sprig of mint. I'm not going to give two. Why should I give two of my sprigs of mint? I only need to give one. The bare minimum of what they had to do. It wasn't motivated out of a relationship with God. That's not why they did it. It wasn't a living response to what God has done in their lives. But that's where God's brought us to. Because God's brought us into a living relationship with him. And so as we, as we live our lives and as we relate to him and we talk with him and we pray and we have him speak to us as he's spoken to us this morning, it may well be that God says, hey, do you know what? I want you to do this. I want you to go to this place. I want you to get involved with this church plan. I want you to give here to this person or to the church. Or, and I want you to give even more than you would have done and that you thought about doing. And it, he might say, well, I want you to give your, give your time and commitment to this ministry or whatever it might be. It's not a set of rules. It's not a set of laws. I'm not going to lay them out. But it, it's a living relationship with God when God speaks to us. And we respond in our hearts and we say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, because I'm yours. I'm yours. That's what the Spirit's brought us into. And there's joy that comes from it. And there's freedom that comes from it. So it means we joyfully give up our preferences. And we joyfully give up our comforts. And it means that we're able to perhaps move our family to another part of the country or even another part of the world, even though life will be harder. I've known people who've given up jobs, well-paid jobs and businesses, jobs that have paid six-figure salaries, and they've given them up so that they can serve in the church, maybe employed by the church, maybe just serving in a ministry in the church, and, and started to get a job which doesn't pay as well so that they can really give into something, or whatever it might be. They've done things that people in the world would think are absolutely crazy. Why would you do that? It seemed crazy to others about them. They've done it because they've understood they're not their own. They have the stamp of God on their lives. And they can give it all to him. Brent was saying earlier, we're entering a year where we believe God is exhorting us to give ourselves fully to him and his church. We're embarking on a year where we'll be buying and renovating a new building. We're believing that that's to be used for God's purpose. And it's going to take time. And it's going to take effort. And it's going to take people's skills and gifts to get involved in different areas. It's going to take increased finances. We believe it's going to be a building that's going to be used by God to reach the local community in the Devon area. But more than that, to see people saved and gathered and taught and discipled from the whole 
of Fredericton, and more than that, even beyond. And we're believing that as well as all of this, as well as all that might come in, in use for the building and getting that up and running, and in, in the communities that we're working into, and maybe starting different ministries that aren't even in existence yet to, to gather people, to reach people, even more than that, we're still believing that God has called us as the church in Fredericton, God's called us to plant churches into all of the university towns and cities in the whole of Atlantic Canada. So we're being called to establish churches. We've already got churches in, in Charlottetown and in Wolfville, but we're being called to plant into Halifax and to St. John and St. John's and Antigonish and Church Point and Truro and Sackville and Sydney and Moncton. That's a big calling for a church. Just look around. There's not a lot of us. That's a big calling. And more than that, God is calling us to be involved in the nations. Maybe nations who are coming here, but maybe actually by going to nations. We've even got people from within our church who are out now in other parts of the world because they're going because they're wondering, is God saying that we're going to be going here? Is God saying, you know, Jenny and Derek, Sue and Keith are out, are out now. Is God saying? There's an openness to what God is wanting for their lives and what God's wanting for us as a church. That's huge. That's huge. All of those things. God's calling us to give ourselves fully to what he's doing. We bear his image. We're Christians. We means little Christs. We're here in the world to bear witness to him. We're here in the world to give to God what is God. God's not calling a handful of leaders to do this, you know. He's not calling the elders of the church to be involved in this and for others to be spectators. We don't come here once a week, so oh, it'd, be, it'd be nice to get the update as to what's happening we're not just called to spectate. We're not just called to get the updates. We're called to be involved. We don't just come here once a week anyway, and then that's it. And that's, that's what we give. That's the Lord's Day. We give that day of the week, or that morning of the week, to, to God. And then the rest of the week's has to do with, no. This isn't about us coming and watching the team play. We're the team. We're all part of it. God's calling us to all be part of what he's doing. So how, how about you? Is God, an, is God an extra in your life? Is God someone who you fit in when you have a spare moment in a busy schedule? Do you, do you just carve out certain parts of the week? Okay, these are God's going to separate these bits out. These bits of mint here. This, bit, this mint's mine. Oh, it can, have this, it can have two hours on a Wednesday and uh, three hours on a, a Sunday morning. That'll do. That's not what God's asking. That's not what God's wanting. Is gathering with the church, the body of Christ, is it a priority for you? Do you put other things before it? Are we willing to be used by God however he wants to use us? Are we willing to be involved in bringing about his kingdom, even if it means giving up our hours of watching Netflix? 
Are we willing to spend time with people who are hurting and lonely and rejected, even if it means sacrificing our comfort and our reputation? Are we willing to love our neighbor as ourselves, which is what God, Jesus, went on to talk about? Are we willing to give generously and sacrificially to see God's purposes fulfilled in and through his church? Are we willing to go where God calls us to go, even if it means dying to our career plans? Because that's, that's not where the best jobs are, or that's not where the best university is. And it, even if it means leaving our family and friends, and even if it means facing our fears, and even if it means sacrificing our worldly wealth, are we willing to go? Are we willing to go because we long to see churches planted and established that are going to see people saved and added to a thriving and vibrant, spirit-filled community? Are we willing to do that? God gives us everything. He's given us everything. He gave his only son who gave his life for us that we might become children of God. That was the price God paid for us. That's how we've been bought. And if we know God, we're no longer our own. God has paid for us. He's given everything for us. He continues to give everything for us. And he's calling us to give everything for him. Not one 365th. Not one-tenth. Everything. It's what he's calling us to. To love him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. And to love our neighbors, those around us, as ourselves. That's what it means to give to God what is God's. That's what it means. Why don't we stand and pray? Maybe the band can come back up. I, b I do believe that there's people here this morning who God has been speaking to. And you, you've realized that for you, you were just separating part, parts of your life out. You were willing to be involved, but this much and this much, and this much is mine. And you've begun to see that actually God's wanting far more than that. And that can be a scary place to be. That can be a scary place to be. But actually, there's no better place to be. Because when we try and figure it all out ourselves, we end up not in as good a place as when we say, God, I'm yours. And you do what you want with me. And I'm putting my trust in you. So I believe this morning as we worship, we're going to sing. We're going to sing one of the songs that we sang already, which involves the line... Oh, we're not going to sing one of the songs we've done already. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> but we've sung already. All I am is yours. All I am is yours. You know, to declare those words, we can sing them. 
and we can just and they can go. But actually, to sing them from our heart is is hard. But it's the best thing ever. It really is. For some of you today, I believe God's wanting to get you to that place of saying, God, all I am is yours. Whatever that means. Whatever that means. If that's you, as we worship and talk about all the things that God's, and sing about all the things that we're believing God's going to do in this city and in this land, I just want to encourage you to come down to the front. We're not going to sign you up for a church plant in Antigonish this morning. We're going to pray that God has his way in your life. Whatever that means. And we'd love to do that with you. So as we worship, why don't you come? Father God, I just pray, keep speaking to us this morning. Thank you for your word, Lord. It, thank you for the comfort it brings us. Thank you for the challenge it brings us. Thank you that we know the truth is only found in you. We want to walk in all that you have for us in this life, God. We look around and we say, we don't feel that we are many. We are not strong in and of ourselves for all that you are calling us to. <laughs> we can be very fearful sometimes. But, oh God, give us courage, give us strength, give us unity. Let us walk together in all that you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why